You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. On today's podcast, we're going to dive deep into this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island and going to talk for a few minutes about the new series beyond oak island which aired right after it this week but before we do all of that we have a few emails have been promising to answer so let's get to those first uh, i do have a few to catch up with here so this might be a little bit longer than usual podcast sorry about that our first email comes all the way from Kilkenny, Ireland, an incredible medieval town in the southeast of Ireland, which is known for many things, probably most famous among them being the Kilkenny Castle, which was built right around 1200, I think in the 1190s. Um, listen, if I were to compile a list of places for first-time travelers to Ireland to go and visit, Kilkenny would be near the top of that list. You're a lucky man. A- amazing place. Anyway, here is Sean from Kilkenny, Ireland, who writes, Hi, Dave, I've just discovered your podcast within the last week, and I must commend you on a great job you're doing with it. Thank you. You're bringing much-needed depth and structure to what is known about Oak Island, and in general, it is a fascinating listen. Well done. I appreciate that, Sean. Although I have not gone through each episode yet, I'm getting there, so my question to you may have already been covered, and if so, forgive me, please. But I'm just wondering if you can shed some light on the large stone landscape structure we see in the money pit each week on the show. I know it is Rick's tribute to the women who have gone before on Oak Island, which is great, but I've seen on social media that this was the quote-unquote mystery shaft briefly shown on a Drilling Down episode a couple of seasons ago. On this episode, this seemed like a significant discovery by the team with all to be revealed in the following season, but it was never mentioned again. If I'm not mistaken, Matty Blake was lowered into this shaft, which had an old ladder still intact in it. It is so close to some of the significant boreholes and drilling experiments in the Money Pit area that it surely must hold some significance itself. And why would the show never mention this again? Anyway, apologies for the long-winded email. Keep up the good work with the podcast. It is getting me through our latest lockdown here in Ireland. Warm regards, Sean in uh, South Kilkenny, Ireland. Sean, it is an old shaft. It's an old searcher shaft from the 1890s, at least that's what Dan Henske said later on. Uh, and I think he said that off camera as well. As far as I know, this is also that very same shaft from one of those Maddie Blake shows you're mentioning here. I remember Marty Lagina taking Maddie around this old shaft and yes, like maybe even an old ladder being in there too. But I wouldn't call it briefly shown because they did spend quite some time on it in that show, if memory serves, made a real big deal out of it. Uh, It clearly was, at least to me, even at the time, honestly, a searcher tunnel, which is likely why they never really did a follow-up during that next season. Now, I say this all the time, so if you're new to the show, forgive me. Um, (laughs) This might be news for you. Uh, Forgive me if you're not new to the show. Uh, Prometheus likes to show us something that looks really significant, But if future research proves it to not be all that significant, then the showrunners never go back to correct the record and update us on it, really. Uh, It may get a passing mention somewhere down the line, but it's almost never actually followed up with and sort of debunked, really. They just don't do that. They prefer to leave us guessing. So, Sean, let me caution you. If you see something on the show that looks amazing, but it is never followed up on, well, now you know why that might be. 
And you're also correct in saying Rick turned this whole area into something of a rock garden and then also placed a memorial in front of it as a tribute to the women of Oak Island who really sacrificed and lost so much over the years to the treasure hunt, uh, some of them even losing family members. As far as why there are all these really big rocks, well, when you dig that much in Nova Scotia, you come across a lot of really big boulders. You need to put them somewhere. So I think Rick just kind of used the opportunity to do something nice and thoughtful with these giant boulders, and he made this nice little area over there. Having said that, I didn't want you guys just to take my word for it on all this. Far be it for me to dispute the wisdom of those on social media. So I asked Laird Niven and Doug Kroll what this feature was, and they both confirmed the information I just gave you. Here is exactly what Doug said. Quote, when Dan Henske identified the existence of what he believes to be shaft 12 in a location in the bank east of the head and shaft, one was found there. A retaining wall was needed to keep the shaft open, so Rick decided that the bank should be landscaped into a memorial to all the women directly or supportively involved with the history of Oak Island. That is the stone tier structure around this mystery shaft. He even used that word mystery shaft, uh, so he must be <laughs> tuned into what people are calling it. So, Sean, I think my best advice is to say with all honesty, uh, don't get too worried about what social media says when it comes to these things. Yes, the show exaggerates and certainly did here, but so does social media. If there was something there, do you really think the team would fill it in and cover it up with big giant boulders? <laughs> if it really was ignored after we saw those scenes of it, we can honestly just assume there was nothing of real interest there anyway. Again, the show tends to exaggerate. That's what shows do. But this show also likes, again, to present us with kind of cool-looking stuff, you know, to kind of stay in the back of our minds. And if it turns out in the long run not to be anything all that exciting, they just sort of ignore it and leave us with that cool-looking image in the back of my, our minds, you know. That's just what they do. Great. Thank you for the email. Let's go to another email from our friend Peter who asks, Helpful would be a rundown of what new shows air when. It's confusing every year. Not the main show, but the new recaps or best ofs or special episodes of William Shatner's show, plus the marathons of reruns. I want to see anything updated, but history doesn't curate it all. I have to scroll and search and still not sure. It might be a straightforward subject for a whole podcast. Here are the types of shows. Here is what's on when. Here is where to find the best ofs, etc. from last year. Any advice would be good. I'm willing to help. At least double check what you find, Peter. Peter, this is a great idea, uh, but it's just not something I honestly have time for. Um, I don't get paid to do this podcast. I make nothing off this. I'm hoping to change that somewhere down the line so I can continue to do the podcast, but for now I don't. So I'm really focused on the research and getting through all this. It takes me a good three days to produce this, um, you know, and the better part of the working hours of those days to write all this and to do the research I want to do and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I wanted to read it here, your email here, in case any listeners have any ideas for Peter on this. Uh, as for myself, uh, I'm a member of many Oak Island Facebook fan groups, and those groups pretty much ensure that I don't miss anything important. A lot of stuff is posted there. I mean, it's kind of haphazard. It's not all curated in one spot. But if you're following it, you know, and you're reading through these things, you'll be up to date for sure. It might be a helpful tool for you just until we figure something else out. Also, uh, I have a way to set my DVR to record literally anything that contains the words Oak Island in it. <laughs> it ends up meaning I do a lot of erasing. Anyway, thanks again, Peter. Hopefully we can come up with some ideas for you. Let's go to, I think his name is Lionel, who writes us from Templar country. 
He writes, writing from Portugal 35 miles away from the historical surviving Templar headquarters, Tamar. We talked about Tamar a bunch of times on this uh, podcast. Uh, he writes, I just recently came across your podcast as I was seeking some new ones for my morning hikes. And I must say it is great. It's amazing how you can make such detailed and rich reflections without actually being with boots on the ground there. I, I appreciate that. It's not easy. It takes a lot of time. Anyway, uh, listening to your season eight preview, I was somewhat surprised by realizing many people found season seven frustrating. It was by far one of the most data rich and evidence rich seasons. Instead of theories and trying out holes, returning wood that may or may not mean something, there was actually progress on several fronts, such as the cave and pit, the foundation, and mostly the swamp. Okay, let me just interject here a bit uh, before we move on to the rest of his email. I think you have to keep in mind what the previous two seasons were like, seasons five and six, previous to the season seven. Uh, in those, we had human bones, uh, a Templar cross, both found in season five, and then all that intense work in Smith's Cove in season six, they really were great seasons of television with a lot of stuff to think about and talk about. Now, me personally, I agree with you. Season seven might not have had the huge history altering finds, but it was still great fun and still a lot of great information. Anyway, the email continues. I was wondering and asking whether this might be a nice topic for an episode if one shouldn't check out the Vikings aspect now that one has actual dating about the swamp and how it could connect neatly to the Templar theory and beyond. My rationale is this. The timeline of the swamp maps neatly with the current knowledge about architectural styles in, <laughs> I think it's Lons O Meadows. <laughs> Look it up. L apostrophe A-N-S-E-A-U-X Meadows. While I forgot where I saw this, the evolution in architectural styles in that settlement point to a 200-year or 300-year occupation period. Considering the settlements in Greenland lasted until 1300s to the 1400s, that would match neatly with the timeline. From the sagas, we know several other settlements existed, as is often mentioned in connection with Oak Island. But could this mean that the swamp might actually yield ar actual archaeological data about one of those? Also interesting is that we know the first European born in the Americas, and again, I'm butchering these names, Snorri Thornfinson is the, uh, is the ancestor of another uh, European, uh, uh, another Viking, who, as Wikipedia states, was, quote, knight of Norway, known for having compiled a number of Icelandic sagas and other materials mostly in his own hand, bound in a book called the Hoxbok after him. These old Norse names are so hard to pronounce, so many consonants. Anyway, it's circa 1300s. He continues, This means that any members of the European nobility in connection with Norwegian nobility would certainly know about the sagas and Vinland, which was, for those of you who don't know, that was the Viking name for the sort of unspecified area of North America. Um, uh, and he writes, Not as tales, but as reliable history. We know that a bishop of Greenland was appointed in the 1100s, possibly reaching Vinland. So knowledge of those northwestern reaches was reaching as far south as the papacy. And there was ample political maneuverings via church factions for centuries. So someone going on a wild goose chase or wild errand, even if with treasure, would not be impossible. That the Sinclair stem from Scotland only makes the Norway connection even further a possibility. The secondary aspect is whether you have any thoughts why the show hasn't touched more on the Portuguese connection, besides occasional reference to Portuguese oaks. A particular aspect I would expect them to approach is the disappearance of Miguel Corte Real 
in and the existence of the Dighton Rock in Massachusetts. Okay, I have to interject here again. This is a long email. It's got great information in it. A lot of stuff for you to look up. First of all, the Viking thing. Um, No evidence so far that I'm aware of points us towards Vikings um, to be in Oak Island. There are there is evidence that they were here in those areas around then, but we don't know. We don't have any evidence yet for me to go in that direction. That's where I am. Uh, the Dighton Rock, for those of you who don't know, is one of those many rocks in North America with carved petroglyphs on it and of kind of an unknown origin. Uh, some believe it might have been this Portuguese explorer you mentioned here. Some also say it might have been the Vikings. This is in Massachusetts again. Uh, some say the Phoenicians. George Washington thought it was carved just by Native Americans. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Look it up. Anyway, back to the email. I personally know of a rock art expert colleague, a university professor like myself, although I'm from computer science, unlike she, who has seen it and vouched to me that she does agree with the Corte Real interpretation of the engravings there. Now, listeners, I suggest you go look at those. Uh, So I trust that over allegations of debunking this as, as an indigenous symbol. In 1500, Miguel and his brother had reached Greenland, thus passing Oak Island for sure. They mapped the coast of Labrador and lost the ship of Miguel's brother, Gaspar, apparently near Newfoundland, enticingly close. Enticingly close, but not close enough. (laughs) Uh, The following year, Miguel tried to find his brother, which indicates he was keen on the possibility of crew members being alive and shored, and also disappeared after departing from the last location in Newfoundland. Given that their family was famously linked to the Portuguese kings and conquests, hence to the surviving Templars, which avoided their end in Portugal by being rebranded as the Order of Christ since the king himself was a member, one would expect far more about this in the show. Any ideas? Kind regards, Lionel. Uh, Sir, thank you for this fascinating email, uh, for one thing. Um, Thank you for taking the time, really, for putting it together. It's really fascinating stuff. The Portuguese connection is always of interest to Oak Island fans because of the relations between Portugal and the Knights Templars, which you mentioned. As many listeners know, um, after the call came out um, to (laughs) round up from the King of France and from the Pope to round up and execute the Knights Templar, Portugal and the Portuguese king did not comply. And many of the Templars fled to Portugal, where they continued to operate under the name the Order of Christ. This pretty much means that any theorist can connect, even if only tangentially, just about any important person from Portugal or who dealt with Portugal to the Knights Templar. So I'm not sure the Portuguese connection, in quotes as you call it, really has been ignored. I just don't think we've heard it referred to as just the Portuguese connection in particular. Am I making sense here? Almost all the time that we talk about Templars, we're not really talking about Templars. We're talking about groups related to the Templars who existed after the Templars were disbanded. And most of the time, those groups deal with this order of Christ. So I think there's a lot of Templar connection that we could call we could call the Portuguese connection. Now, I think the Vikings... And the Portuguese, what we would call descendants of the Templars, will always be part of the conversation. And they have been for decades. But let me just be totally honest with you here as we're having this conversation. As for me, my focus of research and really of theorizing is honestly starting to get further and further away from these time periods and these possible suspects. 
And in your email is a great example of why. If we accept what you call the Corte Real interpretation of the Dighton Rock, and it was indeed carved by the Portuguese, there still remains no concrete connection between the rock and Oak Island. At least none that I can find. The only connection is, you know, I guess if you're looking at a globe, they're not too far off each other. But when you're talking about sailing a ship in the 1200s or whenever it was, the 1400s, they are pretty far away. <laughs> I mean, it, it just the two just aren't evidence of each other in my mind. It's all about with these theories connecting dots that just don't seem to exist to me. And that has always been the case with the Templar theory in my mind. I mean, that's been the problem with the Templar connection really all from the start. But I don't want to get too far into that. I'm not saying the connection can't be made. I'm not saying that that's, I'm convinced the Templars aren't part of all this. I'm just saying, in my mind, these connections haven't been made yet. And of all the theorizing and all the looking into these things that I have done, the Templar stuff seems to definitely be the most tangential as far as evidence goes, certainly the, the, the least concrete in my mind. Anyway, thank you again for such a great email. And if you have anything else to add to your theory, any more information, uh, feel free to send it to me. We could discuss it even more here or just between the two of us. I always, always, always encourage my listeners to feel free to prove me wrong. That's what I'm here for. Let's go to an email from Eric. He writes, hi, Dave. I've been watching the marathon this weekend in preparation for the new season. On one episode where the guys were meeting with Dan discussing the possibility of excavating Smith's Cove, I noticed Dan had what looked like a hand-drawn map in front of him. The map, to my eyes, had all the quote-unquote new discoveries found on it, including the slip boy. When they actually did the work the following year, they acted as if all the things they found besides the U-shaped structure were new to them. Okay, I could be wrong, but it appears they already knew what they would find, and if that's true... Why go to all the effort and expense to uncover it again? Keep up the good work on the podcast. Regards, Eric. P.S. The episodes with the guest interviews have been awesome. Thank you. Eric, my friend, um, you have correctly identified what I would call uh, the biggest complaint from serious Oak Island fans about Season 6 and the work done excavating Smith's Cove. Yes, most of what they uncovered was already known to exist, and much of it already found, documented, and even photographed by Dan Blankenship decades earlier. What the Laginas wanted to do, besides create a really good show, let's keep that in mind, was to bring in a much more effective and elaborate cofferdam and get a seriously good look at these features, and then, of course, bring in modern testing and dating and all that into the picture as well, which I don't think Dan was able to do all of that back then. Not everything they found that year was previously documented, not by any means, but the producers did make it sound like these were all groundbreaking new discoveries. But as you say, many of them were not. If you listen closely to the guys talking throughout that season, you'll see what I mean. Again, the show exaggerates, but I guess that's what I'm here for. And finally, our friend Peter writes... Important we know when drilling down was shot. If after the digging, doesn't that mean no major treasure was found? If midsummer, totally different story. If they disclosed, I missed it. Also, I'm curious where the host is from. He also get in from the States, from Peter. Uh, Pete, again, thank you for another email. No, they don't say specifically when it was shot, but you can kind of tell, right? I mean, it certainly is not later in October or early November because uh, we see leaves on the trees and even some scenes where the guys are in short sleeves. 
Um, it's not definitive, but you can kind of tell this was a bit earlier in the year. And let me also say this. That's completely on purpose, right? I mean, if by the end of the season they have done a huge you know, excavation in the swamp, well, we can't have Matty Blake walking around with a camera showing us all that since it's, you know, 15 episodes away. Now, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. If you really pick these shows apart, you could see they're all probably shot at different times throughout the season. And hopefully, I guess Maddie has a drawer full of red flannel shirts to wear. Um, now, as far as how Maddie got to the country to do this, got into the into Canada to do this, I assume he isolated. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's from Boston. I, uh, I think he is. He might even live in New York City now. I'm, I'm not really sure. So uh, he's an American, though, but I can only imagine he faced the same difficulties. Listen, Nova Scotia was taking this very, very seriously and were creating this Atlantic bubble that they were very successful with in mitigating the spread of COVID-19. Maddie and, and Prometheus, too, would so- certainly not risk getting themselves in trouble with the government, a relationship that everyone with the show and the treasure hunt really needs to keep friendly. Anyway, that's it for the emails. If you got anything you want to mention to me, any criticisms of the show or comments or things you liked or things you want to talk about or theories, Island at gmail.com. We'll be right back to talk about Beyond Oak Island. Okay, as I said, before we get started with this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island, I wanted to mention the debut of a brand new series, Beyond Oak Island. This was season one, episode one, called Pirate Treasures, and it starred Rick and Marty Lagina, as well as the aforementioned Maddie Blake. Now, this show is not really Oak Island related, obviously, other than it's shot on Oak Island and it includes the Laginas. Uh, And we are an Oak Island podcast, so my plan going into this was not to spend too much time on this show, but... I have to admit right here, I really, really liked it. Uh, if every episode was as good is going to be as good as this one was, I might not be able to help myself in discussing it here on the show. So uh, indulge me a little bit. I'll explain in just a minute. Now, before I do that, I want to mention two things right off the bat after something we just talked about. Um, keep in mind, a lot of this show was shot before the COVID-19 pandemic and all of the travel restrictions and safety precautions that resulted from it. I know a lot of people ask about those things, so let's not worry too much going forward about that because I would imagine each episode contains footage shot from across a long time frame of probably, you know, a year or more. So let's not get distracted by all that. And again, let's just assume Prometheus and all involved took the proper precautions so as to not, uh, you know, (laughs) incur the wrath of the government. Also, weirdly, the History Channel, and this was pointed out to me, uh, in fact, the actual homepage when you went to history.com, at least, you know, this week, says that new episodes of Beyond Oak Island will air on Saturdays at 9 o'clock. But that does not actually seem to be the case. When you look into their schedule, it looks as though, at least for the next two weeks, that new episodes will air on Tuesdays at 10 p.m. after every new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. But that might change. I'm not sure if you know anything or if you see that they switch. uh, Let me know. I'll certainly do my best to to, uh, communicate that to all of you as well. Now, this show begins at the Oak Island War Room, where Rick and Marty are joined by Maddie Blake, who apparently has graduated up from host to the title of Oak Island Researcher. He must be very proud. And they are also joined by treasure hunter Christian Roper. Roper is not only a treasure hunter, he's also a photographer, filmmaker, and a musician. He comes from Texas, 
Also apparently comes from a life, a long line of treasure hunters and adventurers. If you want to check this guy out, you take a look at his photography and learn a little more about him. Uh, he's a fascinating, dude. Um, check out his website, ChristianBRoper.com. I'm sorry if you're listening on headphones closely. You might have heard my dog walking around there. I apologize for that. Anyway, uh, the subject here is one of my absolute favorite subjects, literally, in all of American history. (laughs) The legendary pirate and smuggler, Jean Lafitte. Just to tell you a little bit about myself, I guess, another of Dave's absolute favorites, my absolute favorite city that I've ever been to in all of North America, and I've been to many of them. And maybe even my absolute favorite city in the world is the Big Easy, New Orleans. I just love, love, love New Orleans. Among the so many aspects of New Orleans, I love is its incredible history. And no man is more important or looms larger in the city and its surrounding area, uh, at least the history of those areas, is, um, you know, no one looms larger than that most famous of American scallywags, John Lafitte. If you don't know much about Lafitte, let me give you just a little sort of sampler here. Like any good criminal, we have no idea where or when Lafitte was born. (laughs) No idea. Most likely, he was born sometime in the maybe the 1780s from about how old he was when he came popular around New Orleans. And probably he was born either in France or more likely in the Caribbean, specifically the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which was one of the uh, which was on the island of Hispaniola in what is now Haiti. He shows up in Louisiana just after it became part of the United States around 1810 or so with his brother Pierre. The two never claimed to be pirates like in the Blackbeard sense, you know, of like a captain, a ship raiding merchants and that kind of thing. John Lafitte thought himself more of a, oh, how do you put it? A, a businessman, kind of like how Michael Corleone would have called himself a businessman in The Godfather, right? Lafitte led a group of men who came to be known as the Baratarians, named after this area of the swamplands just south of New Orleans called Barataria. They sold and smuggled all sorts of stuff, including slaves, actually, and really anything the government wouldn't allow. Remember, this is an era of various trade restrictions and embargoes and all that kind of stuff, so Lafitte was kind of taking advantage of that situation. Many a time, some poor government official tried to arrest and shut down Lafitte and the Baratarians, only to end up disappearing into the swamps and bayous, probably ending up as gator food, although they did manage to arrest and jail Pierre in 1812. We'll get to that in just a second. Jean Lafitte's story takes its most famous and, frankly, most unpredictable turn in 1814 when the British Navy approached Lafitte with letters, with an offer to help the British in the War of 1812 in return for land grants and British citizenship. Lafitte decided, correctly as it turned out, that by helping the British, he just might be backing a losing horse. And also, he can put himself in much better bargaining position by helping the Americans. So he took the British offer, which I told you they wrote down in letters to him, to the governor of Louisiana, offering to help defend his beloved New Orleans from British attack. And coincidentally, Pierre was soon just able to escape from prison. Funny how that works, huh? The Americans were initially and understandably a bit leery of, you know, getting into bed with Lafitte, so to speak. Uh, But by the end of 1814, General Andrew Jackson, who wasn't leery of anyone, really, let's face it, came to the Big Easy to lead its defense against this inevitable British invasion. Well, you know the rest. Jackson and Lafitte joined forces, the British, and they, they defeated the British in what we now call the Battle of New Orleans. And I bet you're singing that Johnny Horton song right now, aren't you? 
After the Lafitte's helped the United States win the Battle of New Orleans, he and his men were issued pardons. But Lafitte didn't exactly retire in peace or turn to a life of legitimate business endeavors. No, instead, he made off for Galveston to continue what was he was what really what he was best at, you know, smuggling, piracy, all that kind of fun stuff. U.S. officials chased him around Texas for a while until he eventually disappeared. Just like his birth, nobody knows where and when John Lafitte died or what he did with the millions he must have earned over the years, although we can't say for sure how much it was or, I mean, it's not like he filled out tax returns, you know. That leads us back to Christian Roper, who has been following the trail of Lafitte and is searching the bottom of a murky, snake-and-alligator-infested lake in East Texas for wagon loads of Lafitte silver. Now, come on. How great is this? He's even independently uh, producing a film on this hunt called Sunken Silver. You can go to sunkensilver.com to learn more about that. Now, I reached out to Mr. Roper to ask him about this project, and here is what he wrote back to me. Quote, I've been producing an independent documentary about Hendricks Lake for the past two years, aimed primarily telling the stories of the past searchers in the 1950s and 1960s. There are also numerous people like Jim Rathman, I'm assuming he means the race car driver, Gordon Cooper, who was a Mercury astronaut and also no stranger to treasure hunting, by the way, and Gene Dixon. Again, I'm, I assume he's referring to the Gene Dixon who was a, uh, how do you call her, like a celebrity psychic, right? Uh, and these folks who have all had connections, I'm continuing with Mr. Roper here, all have connections to Hendrix, but these stories have never been told. Also dives deep into the paranormal side of Lafitte's stories, including interviews with a historian whose childhood dreams led him to look into Lafitte's life via past life hypnosis. The film also focuses on how the folklore surrounding the lake has morphed over time. In fact, in the 50s, there were arguments locally over what was even being sought in the lake. That's the end of the quote. Now, really, how great does all this sound? <laughs> and of course, what we got on the show here was just a fraction of what this guy is dedicating himself to. He writes later, quote, the dive we did on the show was on a very tight schedule and cut short by very rough storms, which were on and off for our entire shoot. So you can bet your bottom dollar that I'm working hard and getting Christian on the podcast here to tell us more about this. It might not be very Oak Island related, but seriously, how great is this whole thing? I'd love to learn more about it, and I assume you will too. If not, indulge me, right? Now, truth be told, I'm not sure what any of this has to do with Rick and Marty Lagina or what they can offer to any of these hunts, but I don't care. I liked it, and I really liked Rick's sort of old, wise wizard role that he played here with Mr. Roper. I'm not sure how much we're going to talk about beyond Oak Island in the future. Maybe not every mention, you know, not maybe not a mention every week. But if these shows are all as fun as this one was, then I might not be able to help myself. I mean, I just spent how long talking about Jean Lafitte? <laughs> and like I said, I'm not done with this. Okay, finally half hour into the podcast and we make it to season eight episode two of the curse of oak island called the boys are back it begins with a montage of sorts from rick and marty and alex lagina also nephew peter Fernetti, who are enduring two weeks of isolation in houses on the mainland across mahome bay from oak island now most of these shots were obviously done by one of those four guys with their phone or maybe even a gopro but on more than one occasion the image showed both guys in the house thus making my wife wonder how they could be isolated if there was a cameraman there filming them? <laughs> Great question. But again, 
I don't want to get bogged down in this stuff. Um, I hope we can turn the page on this soon. Let's just assume everyone's complying with the regulations. When the brothers finally do make it to Oak Island, they make Lot 15 their very first stop. They are there to see firsthand this new site and to see a peculiar stone uncovered before the Laginas actually made it onto the island. This is an area first brought to their attention by an old map, coming from the days when Fred Nolan and Dan Blankenship were still partners, and where last week, archaeologists concluded um, that they were looking at the site of an old pine tar kiln, the three archaeologists working there right now. Now, I'm not going to explain all that again today in this show, so go back and have a listen to last week's episode if you need to catch yourself up. But this rock, which they found in this episode, the one they're looking at, is a flat, large flat stone with a round hole drilled into it, and uh, one side apparently split off, kind of making a flat edge. Uh, Laird Niven then also points out that there's a beveled edge in one corner. Clearly, this stone has been worked, or at least altered, by humans. And Rick opines that the stone doesn't appear to be related at all to the structure that they're excavating. Uh, and again, I'm assuming he's talking about not related to the pine tar kiln. Steve Gupto later says that it's an old survey stone, and he appears to be correct. I mean, he would know, right? That's his job. Mostly, survey stones like this were used to mark off property lines, and if memory serves, the hole in the middle was to kind of put out a flag or some kind of marker of some kind showing that the property line is, so for really for whoever would need to know, you know, like other surveyors or maybe noisy neighbors, you get the idea. Conversation soon turns to this mysterious structure they're unearthing, the pine tar kiln. What brought them to this location, as I said before, was this old map made by Fred Nolan when he was still partnering with Dan Blankenship. The map shows a possible tunnel entrance in this area, but archaeologist David McGinnis says that there is, if there is a tunnel, which they haven't seen any evidence of yet, then it must be much deeper down than they've dug so far. The team then mentions how this would have been a quote-unquote small pine tar kiln, which weirdly is in direct contrast to what the team said last week when they were calling it a quote-unquote big operation. Once again, not given any reason for this reversal of their opinion, but I suppose we're no longer calling this the site of a former big industrial operation. Now it's just something small. The team then takes off into this very strange conversation about the purpose of this pine tar kiln. It begins with McGinnis giving us what really was a very good guess at the origins and the purpose of this kiln. Now, as early as the first half of the 16th century, in the early 1500s, Europeans were fishing in North America, off the coast of Newfoundland, off Nova Scotia, certainly all over the Grand Banks, parts of Maine, all, you know, all over that area. Fishermen would sail across the Atlantic, build themselves a sort of non-permanent little settlement on land, usually on an island then catch their fish and bring them all back to Europe. This happened, like I said, all up and down that sort of North Atlantic coast. One of the things they didn't always bring with them, maybe because they weren't able to, was the much-needed pine tar. Again, we talked about this last week. It's ubiquitous in maritime application at the time. Instead, they would often make their own pine tar, whatever they needed, right where they were. Now, with Carmen Legg's assessment last week, that this kiln would date from around 1550 to 1620, this all makes a lot of sense. It's a fascinating and important little historical discovery for sure, maybe not even all that little, and it adds a really a fascinating layer to Oak Island's history, a previously unknown layer that would put people on this island at a time where maybe we're thinking somebody's depositing things as well. You would think that's that, right? But no. 
Instead, for the next few minutes, the team twists themselves into human pretzels, trying to fit the existence of this kiln into some potential story involving treasure in the money pit. The narrator says, and this honestly could be one of the most ridiculous things I've heard him say in quite a while, that, quote, although tar may have been made on Oak Island for the purpose of waterproofing ships, it has been speculated that the unique placement of a pine tar kiln on Lot 15 was most likely for the purpose of waterproofing an underground tunnel or shaft, end quote. What? What is he talking about? What evidence do we have of that? Just saying it doesn't make it true, guys. I can answer the question, what evidence do we have of that? We have none. And I can't just blame the narrator here either. Of all people, Laird Niven gets in on this idea by saying, quote, we always assumed this was used for marine purposes, but it could have been used for the construction of the money pit, end quote. I mean, come on, I'm calling BS on this whole thing. What on God's green earth is he talking about? I guess for that matter, it could also have been used to hide alien spacecrafts or maybe build a nice waterproof home for Bigfoot. I don't know. I'm hoping against hope that Laird actually has some reason, some evidence for concluding that this pine tar kiln was used and built for a purpose other than what every other pine tar kiln built along the coast in this time frame was built and used for. And I mean, I hate doing this because I love Laird Niven. He is a voice of reason on Oak Island. But he then cites this old legend of someone coming out to the island because they saw mysterious lights. I mean, I don't even know where to begin with this one. The money pit was discovered in 1795, kids. A time period when Oak Island was already subdivided and sold off, likely inhabited, and certainly being used for farming. It was not, as the legend goes, a mysterious, uninhabited island. The team knows this. So why even bring something like this up? That's the kind of nonsense I expect from the narrator, not from an archaeologist. It's very disappointing. I mean, in my mind, this really isn't far off of someone saying, oh, let's say they find archaeological evidence of the existence of an old dairy farm on Oak Island, and then say, could it be these cows were brought to Oak Island to help the Knights Templar lower the Ark of the Covenant into an underground vault? I mean, in my mind, it's just that silly. This is a tar kiln, people. We know exactly what tar kilns were built for. We know what purpose they served. Let's just assume that's the purpose until we find some reason to believe, some evidence suggesting otherwise, and let us stop with this ridiculous speculation, which honestly is all this really is. In this episode, we also head back over to Smith's Cove. Here we see Doug Kroll and Steve Guptill basically retracing and plotting points from this Behringer survey they introduced us to last week. This was the professional survey done in 1988 during the time of Dan Blankenship uh, when he was running the treasure hunt on the island, and which Doug Kroll found while combing through Dan's old files uh, during, uh, I guess, the COVID lockdown, right? He said this past spring. If you didn't know, what Guptill is doing here is replotting these points on this map so it can be interpreted by modern surveying technology. Interestingly, as he was wading out into Smith's Cove, he mentioned that one of the points that the Behringer survey has here happens to line up exactly with the spot where Gary Drayton found that famous medieval lead cross from a couple of seasons back. I'm not sure what that all means, but 
certainly it's a cool little piece of information to keep in mind. During this scene, we get to see some of the important points of this survey animated onto a current map of the east side of the island. These being the potential tunnels that it says they found and also these four points that might indicate the presence of non-ferrous metal. Now, the first thing that came to my mind when they showed these tunnels was that it was just so many of them that it certainly looked to me like more like evidence of this idea of natural underwater caverns and that kind of thing. Something we've talked about a lot in the podcast recently. Also, and I said something like this last week as well, but it bears repeating here, especially after seeing more information from this Behringer survey. But the idea here is that this survey was done and yet never followed up on. And that just doesn't make sense to me. Now, Doug Kroll said last week that there was even a phase two of the survey in the works, and that just never happened. In this episode, like I mentioned, they show us this location of four separate potential locations of non-ferrous metal found underground. Non-ferrous, for those of you who don't know, means essentially not iron, and it could include things like brass and copper and zinc, and yes, precious metals like gold, silver, and even platinum. Again, what they're trying to tell me here is that Dan Blankenship, a man who devoted decades of his life to this treasure hunt, received a professional survey plotting out the locations of not one, but four potential deposits of precious metal, and then he just never bothered to follow up on them? He never drilled an exploratory hole or anything like that, just to have a quick look at what might be down there? He just folded this little piece of paper up and stuck it in a drawer and forgot about it. I mean... That just doesn't square with my knowledge of the man Dan Blankenship was. The man author Randall Sullivan refers to once as the Lion of Oak Island. Dan left no stone unturned, followed every lead. Nothing could stop this guy. He was a force of nature. There has to be more to this story. Perhaps Doug doesn't know what that more is. But there has to be a better explanation than just something along the lines of it was forgotten about. No. The better explanation, at least in my mind, is Dan had some reason to conclude these findings were not worth the time and money to explore, or else he would have done that. That doesn't mean that I think the Behringer survey should just be ignored and put back in the drawer. It's just something for us to be skeptical of going forward, if nothing else. Now, we also see a little bit later Steve Guptill over at the wash table, where he's joined by two guys who apparently work for Billy Gerhardt's contracting company. They're actually sifting through the spoils of hole A or 8A, which was dug last season. Guptill thinks that the area the spoils came from might be the area of the money pit collapse, and in, and in it they find the piece of older-looking leather, which Steve thinks might be from an old bookbinding. But soon, Laird Niven comes along and says it's more likely to be from a boot. Now, I can't imagine Francis Bacon or the Knights Templar sailed across the ocean to hide their boots in a hundred-foot hole in the ground off Nova Scotia. So, unfortunately, this little scene, which was greatly exaggerated in the trailer, turned out to be nothing. Now, I only even bother to mention this scene because it's really just another lesson for those of you who have a tendency to pin your preseason hopes onto something seen in a trailer. They almost always turn out to be meaningless, honestly. And before we wrap up here, let's take a quick stop over at Isaac's Point. If you recall, at the end of last season, there was a drilling down special called Closer Than Ever. It was shot literally days before the COVID-19 pandemic attacked North America and shut down travel between the U.S. and Canada. It talked a lot in that show about quote-unquote off-season projects the team was working on. And one such project, uh, being worked on by Billy Gerhardt, 
was helping to restore Isaac's Point, which apparently suffered greatly from severe beach erosion as a result of the many storms they've had over recent years, including that hurricane, you remember, that came through Nova Scotia uh, during season seven. What Billy was doing was he was moving earth from what they called the money pit hill, which is this <laughs> like sort of where people who were digging in the money pit just sort of dropped all their spoils over into this hill. So they developed this sort of upland area um, that wasn't supposed to be there. Uh, anyway, he was moving it from there over to Isaac's point to kind of help fill the point back in, so to speak. This was all part of a greater goal of restoring Oak Island, really, to its more original look. Gary Drayton and Jack Begley are metal detecting on the uh, over on Isaac's Point, I suppose with the goal of sifting through ground brought up from the Money Pit area, you know, over the decades. Now you can see how this is not a place like the rest of Oak Island, how the ground is not the same. Um, just in the way poor Jack has to really work hard just to get a shovel into only a few inches of the earth here, right? Now they find some bits of pewter and they even find the head of an old pickaxe. They take that axe to blacksmithing ex expert Carmen Legg, who identifies it as coming from around 1750 through the 1800s, so most likely searcher-related, but, you know, maybe not. Later, Gary meets in the war room with uh, the Laginas and Laird Niven to show them this axe and also to finally show them the coin with a square hole in it from last week. And quick aside, what was all that stuff in front of Laird? He had this big paper with all a bunch of stuff in front of I wonder what that was. Anyway. Gary remarks that the coin is made of copper, and he even mentions that it might be colonial in origin. I'm not so sure. As I said last week, I think it's Chinese, but let's wait until next week for more on that. Well, and that's it for this episode, um, as far as, you know, this episode of The Curse of Oak Island. And I got to honestly say, I feel like I took the show to task more in this podcast than I have in a long, long time, if not ever. I hate saying potentially bad things about any of these guys, especially Laird Niven, a guy I really admire and someone whose inclusion in the cast has been wonderful, has been a wonderful breath of fresh air for those of us interested in the history and the archaeology of all this. And the editing in this, listen, it chops up what people are saying and what they are intending that could also be part of what we heard here. Now, if I alienated some of the real Died in the Wolf fans of the show, I do apologize. I just don't know any other way to do this. Again, this is not a fan podcast for The Curse of Oak Island. There are other great podcasts if that's what you're looking for, but that's not what we are. Uh, this is a journey of discovery for me that I hope you, the listeners, enjoy at least being a part of. My goal here is to present an honest and critical look at the Oak Island mystery and, as an extension of that, what they find and present to us on the television show. Honestly, when it comes to running this podcast, I know no other way. So that's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. Helps to get the word out on the show and oh, more ears the better. You can always follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. Just give us a like or a follow there. That would be much appreciated. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. My usual uh, little disclaimer here. If you do not want an email or a comment or anything like that mentioned on the air, please, please make a mention of that. If not, I'm going to consider it fair game to be discussed right here on the podcast. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.